0: In the uh, city of Amsterdam, there's a painting by Rembrandt, and it's one of the most prestigious paintings in all the world of art. It's called The Night Watch. And because it's famous, people want to see it. I mean, every day the museum is just flooded with visitors. And yet, most people who come to take a look have no understanding of what they're seeing. They know very little about Rembrandt, and they know next to nothing about this painting he created. So, for years, tourists would walk through the building and stand in front of this famous work of art and not stand there very long. I mean they just kind of take a quick glance and smile and say "Well, that's nice yeah it is hey i hear it's worth a lot of money yeah i've heard that too and then they move on because they didn't know how to appreciate what they were seeing. so the curators of the museum had an idea they created a new room right next to the gallery where the rembrandt was hanging and they set it up so that you had to come through this room first before you could view the painting and in this new room they put they sketched 50 questions all over the four walls, 50 questions along with the answers. Questions like, why did Rembrandt paint this? And who are the people in this painting? And what new techniques did Rembrandt use in creating this particular work of art? So when you stepped into this room, they would close the doors so that you had to remain in the room for a certain period of time. So you'd have plenty of time to examine the questions and think about the answers. And then they'd open the doors to the gallery. Well, did this strategy make a difference? Yes. Before they created that room, the average length of time that people would stand in front of the Rembrandt was anywhere from 30 seconds to six minutes at the most. But now with the new room, the average length of time that people would stand before this famous work of art went up to anywhere between 20 to 30 minutes. See, because of the new room, because of what they learned and experienced in that first room, now people were encouraged to take a a longer look at the painting. Because of those 50 questions plastered all over the wall, now people were encouraged to take a A closer look at the painting and think about it more and appreciate it more. Because of what they encountered in that first room, now it enabled people to see the painting in a new way. I think that's exactly what God is doing with Elijah here in 1 Kings chapter 19. Only instead of 50 questions, God only has one question for this man. But he'll ask the same question twice. He'll ask him, what are you doing here, Elijah? But I think there's a lot more to that question than what most of us realize. Now, before we get into that, let's, let's give a little context. Do you remember the setting for this? We've been looking at this for the past two weeks. But in case you didn't have a chance to be here, let's, let's just go back to chapter 18 and do, do a little review. Chapter 18, you have the prophet Elijah, and he challenges King Ahab and his 450 prophets of Baal to a contest. A showdown on top of Mount Carmel, so all of Israel can come out and watch. And it's a contest to determine who is the real God of Israel. Is it Baal or is it the Lord God? Uh, The rules of the contest are very simple. Each side, Elijah on one side, the 450 prophets of Baal on the other side. Each side is to build an altar, prepare an animal for the sacrifice, and then pray. And if Baal is real, he can show it by responding, by answering the prayers, by sending fire from the sky to light up the sacrifice. Or if the Lord is real, he can do the same. Well, the prophets of Baal go first. They spend all day six hours dancing, chanting, cutting themselves with knives, and nothing happens. Now it's Elijah's turn, and Elijah is so confident that God's going to deliver. Then in addition to building the altar and preparing the animal for the sacrifice, he calls for 12, 12 buckets of water to be poured over everything. I mean, animal, wood, stones, everything just drenched with moisture. And, of course, everybody's standing around and is thinking to themselves, this thing's never going to light up. Elijah's not worried. He gets down on his knees and he prays for only 30 seconds. Not six hours, just a short, simple prayer. And boom, the fire falls from the sky and obliterates everything. I mean, 30 seconds later, there's nothing there. The animal, the wood, all the stones, every bit of moisture, it has completely disappeared. And the Bible says the people are filled with such awe. They just literally drop to the ground. They fall to their faces and they begin to worship God. Now, if this were a movie, we'd have it stop right at that point. We'd have that be our last scene. I mean, here's the hero, Elijah, standing against all odds, one man against 450, and yet because of his faith in God, he has defeated the enemy. So cue the music. Start the credits. The story's over. Now everybody in the movie theater can get up and walk out and feeling good, feeling exhilarated because God has won the day. Life makes sense again. Everything's back in order. Now everything can return to normal. No, it won't. First Kings chapter 19. In spite of this awesome show, this awesome miracle there on Mount Carmel, it's not changed the mind of Jezebel. She is more determined than ever before to wipe out all believers, especially Elijah. So now instead of things getting better, they're actually going to, for a period of time, they're going to get worse. And Elijah can't believe it. He's devastated. All that glory it we just witnessed on the mountain, and we still haven't gotten the first base in our battle against evil. There's still going to be people, powerful people who oppose us, who resist us. Man. And Elijah's thinking to himself, "What more can we do?" Oh, this is hopeless and he runs away and he heads out into the desert and that's when God begins to work in a very quiet subtle way God doesn't want Elijah to stay in this desert he begins to redirect him to this mountain this famous mountain where he's met with other people before a place called Mount Sinai and it's here as God comes to meet with Elijah that he asks him this question what are you doing here Elijah Now, I think a lot of us miss the significance of what's happening in this encounter between Elijah and and, and God. Uh, A lot of us miss the significance here because we don't hear that question in the right way. I mean, for the longest time when I heard that question, I thought God was rebuking him. That God's upset with Elijah because he's run away to a place where he's not supposed to be. That Elijah's acting much like Jonah. Jonah who ran away from his assignment. You remember, God had to get the big fish to grab Jonah and bring him back to where he's supposed to be. So here in 1 Kings chapter 19, twice I see God grabbing Elijah by the shoulders to shake him back to reality. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know and I know. I didn't call you to this place. I called you to serve over there. But now that I've studied it more and more, I don't think that's what God is saying. I don't think Elijah is acting like Jonah. I don't think Elijah's being rebellious. I think this moment between God and Elijah is more like God's encounter with Job. See, right now, Elijah's a broken man. He's deeply troubled and hurt. And so when God comes here on Mount Sinai, he comes to bring healing. He comes to give hope. He comes to restore confidence. I mean, one of the things you'll notice here in chapter 19, in this conversation between God and Elijah, it's Elijah who does most of the talking. And I think that's by design. Hey, Elijah, you got all this pain bottled up in your soul. You need to get it out. Just share all the exasperation, the frustration, the confusion that you're feeling right now. You just talk to me. And basically, God just stands there listening, kind of nodding his head, because a lot of what Elijah says is true. Hey, Elijah, you're right. Right now, everything in Israel is a mess. But, Elijah, one of the things you're not seeing right now is, even though there's a mess, I'm still sovereign. I am still in control. I still have a plan for my people. And and not even Jezebel and all her friends are going to keep me from carrying out that plan. So when God asks this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't think he's giving a rebuke. I think he's offering an invitation. Here's another reason why I say that. Because you go back to the early part of the chapter, verse 2. Here's Jezebel. She issues her threat. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And then verse 3, we have Elijah's reaction. In most of our English Bibles, it reads, And Elijah was afraid. That's one way to translate it. But in the traditional Hebrew text, they put different vowels with these consonants, and you have a different reading here. Instead of it saying, Elijah was afraid, it actually says, And Elijah saw. Saw what? That now, because of Jezebel, instead of things getting better, after all we just saw there in Mount Carmel, no, things are actually going to get worse and Elijah's reaction is, he's deflated. He just burned out. He's just broken in two. I mean, after that awesome miracle there on Mount Carmel, what more can we do to convince people to turn to the Lord? I mean, if that doesn't persuade them, what will? It's hopeless. And so he runs away, not because he's scared of Jezebel. He runs away because he's just flat out discouraged. God, I've done everything I can do. I've got nothing left to offer. The tank is empty. Obviously, my ministry is not going to be effective anymore. You need to find somebody else to fight the battle. And God sees things differently. So Elijah goes running away. He comes out here to the desert. And now God begins to work. You remember, twice he sends his angel to feed Elijah and to help him to get some much needed rest. And then we get down to verse 7, and we learn that this is no ordinary angel. This is the angel of the Lord. And why does this special angel keep showing up to feed Elijah and help him get his rest? Because God's equipping him. The journey's not over. I need you to come over here to Mount Sinai. See, Elijah, right now things are looking really bad in Israel, and they are. But what you need to understand, it's not as bad as you think. You just need a little new perspective. But in order to get that perspective, Elijah, you've got to come away for a while. You've got to come to a place where you can just be alone with the Lord. And now he has the opportunity to restore your soul. Remember how Psalm 23 puts it? He makes me. To lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside the still waters. Why? So he can feed my faith and make me strong again. That's what God is doing at Mount Sinai. This is where Elijah finds his green pastures and still waters. So when God asks this question, what are you doing here? The emphasis is not on the word here. Hey, what are you doing here in this spot? Aren't you supposed to be over there? No, I think the emphasis is found in the middle part of the question. What are you doing now that you're here, Elijah? Well, Elijah's here to resign. Elijah's here to hang it up. Hey, hey, I'm turning in the badge. God, uh, you're going to have to find somebody else to be your man, to be your prophet. But God is here. God has brought him here to show him what he's been doing and what he's gonna continue to do, and how Elijah's still gonna be a part of that plan. Years and years ago, one night on the show, 60 Minutes, they did this feature in Abraham Lincoln, and they talked about what they found in his pocket on the day he was killed. You know, shot that night in Ford's theater, dies the next morning. In his pocket, they found a pocket knife, they found some Confederate money, and they also found in his wallet, he'd been carrying around this newspaper clipping. And it was obvious that he'd been carrying it around for a long time because the paper's already turning yellow, the edges of the paper were getting frayed. But it was just obvious that on many occasions, Mr. Lincoln had been pulling that clipping out of his wallet to read it and read it again. What well, made everybody curious, what was in this article? Well, Why was this newspaper clipping so important to Abraham Lincoln? Well, it was an editorial. And it was written by a man over in Great Britain, a man who in this editorial said, you know, I know most Americans don't like Mr. Lincoln. They're very critical of him. They, they think he has no clue what he's doing, that he should not be president, that, that he's gotten us into this giant mess, this civil war, and this is just all his fault. But, it, but the man from Great Britain said, I don't see that way. I mean, everybody, though everybody in the South and most people in the North felt that way about Lincoln, I don't see it. He said, I think Abraham Lincoln is going to go down to history. He's one of the greatest presidents America's ever had. At the stand that he's taking to fight slavery and preserve the Union, even though it requires a civil war to pull it off, he is taking the right stand. And in the long run, everybody's going to be able to see he's actually doing what is best for the country. So every day, Abraham Lincoln would carry that around his pocket because that article, that newspaper clipping, did two things. Number one, as a reminder, you're doing the right thing. You are fighting the right fight. And number two, it was this constant piece of encouragement, stay the course see this thing through. I think that's what God is doing with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. God is placing something in his pocket, his mental and emotional pocket. Here on Mount Sinai, he is creating an experience that's gonna stay with Elijah for the rest of his days. An experience that will remind him, you are fighting the right fight and an experience that's gonna give him the encouragement and the strength to stay the course and see this thing through. Watch how this happens. Chapter 19, verse 9, there on Mount Sinai, he, Elijah. So there in Mount Mount Sinai, Elijah went into a cave. And at first, that just makes it appear like he's just kind of stopped in some random place. But in the Hebrew, it literally reads, and he went into the cave. Like we're talking about a specific place, and I think we are. In fact, many people believe it's the same exact cave where Moses came, hundreds of years earlier. Remember Moses came up on the mountain? there to witness the glory of God and yet while he's up there encountering the glory of God what's happening at the bottom of the mountain the people are building the golden calf they're rebelling they're turning away from the Lord now here we are hundreds of years later here's the man of God up there trying to reconnect with the Lord trying to draw closer to God and while he's doing that up in the mountain what's happening at the bottom of the mountain here's Jezebel still leading people astray God after hundreds of years it seems like we're not making any headway in this fight against evil is it really worth the fight God says, yes. So watch. And the word of the Lord, last part of verse 9, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Meaning, Elijah, let's step back for a moment. Let's just kind of analyze things. I'm going to let you talk first. First of all, you tell me how you see things. I mean, you look at the nation of Israel right now. How would you evaluate? What's your perspective on this? And then, Elijah, I'm going to tell you how I see things. Well, so Elijah goes first, verse 10. He says, and Elijah replied, well, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He's been passionate, and he has. He loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's been obvious throughout. And most of what he's about to say is just true, just spot on. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. they torn down your altar. they put your prophets to death. He's right. He's exactly right but with all this strong emotion that Elijah feels right now some of that emotion is beginning to cloud his judgment and there are some things that he does not see clearly and here's one of them and Lord I'm the only one left no he's not See, he's already forgotten what he learned back in chapter 18 that conversation he had with Obadiah and the hundred prophets that he's helping out and then in addition to those hundred prophets God's gonna tell him down here in verse 18 there's 7,000 others who are still faithful, who have never yet bowed the knee to Baal. So after Elijah talks, God says, now, let me show you something. I, I want to show you how I evaluate things. And, and he, he's more than just telling, he's going to show, he's going to create this memorable object lesson. Watch, verse 11, then the Lord said, Elijah, in order for you to appreciate what I'm, the message I'm about to deliver, you're going to have to see this. So you go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by, and Elijah You watch, you observe, just exactly how does God pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a, my Bible says, a gentle whisper. In the Hebrew, it literally is three words, sound, silence, thin. Very thin, meaning not a sound, not a bug, not a bird, not even a leaf rustling. in the wind. Everything in nature comes to an absolute standstill, not a sound at all. I mean, Elijah's been out in nature before, but he's never encountered a profound quiet like this. This God-ordained silence, and immediately he knows he's in the presence of the Lord. So verse 13... When Elijah heard it, he pulled the cloak over his face. Reverence. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice, a soft, gentle, compassionate voice, God says, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, appreciate what's happening. Everything we just read happened before in this same place. You go back to the book of Exodus, and you remember God brought the Israelites. He brings his Hebrew people. He brings them out of Egypt, and he brings them to a specific place, Mount Sinai. That's the place where God wants to meet with him. That's the place where God wants to enter into a covenant with him. That's where he's going to begin to form him into a new nation. He's going to create a new beginning. He's going to lay the foundation for a new chapter of history. This is a defining moment. And to make that moment memorable, Exodus chapter 19, God has Moses and the Israelites spend three days just to get themselves ready for this initial encounter with God. And after three days, how does God first make his appearance there in Mount Sinai? Well, the Bible says, Exodus 19, there was thunder and lightning. There was fire and smoke. And the Bible says, and the whole mountain trembled violently. But unlike what we just read here, God on that day was in every one of those phenomena because here is God assuring Moses and all the Israelites, I am your God and you are my people and you can always count on me to take care of you. And it's in this context that God gives Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments. Here's the foundation upon which we're going to build and develop a new life together. Well, now here we come hundreds of years later to the days of Elijah. And it looks like God's plan A is not working because God's people continue to be unfaithful. So God, isn't it time to scrap plan A and go to plan B? Just wipe out the past and let's just start all over again. I mean, God, what you did back there in the book of Exodus, man, that was noble, but it ain't working anymore. Isn't it time to take a new approach? and three different times the Bible emphatically says, no, God was not in the wind, God was not in the fire, God was not in the earthquake, as a way of saying, there's no need to start all over again. What I did early on there in the days of Moses there in Mount Sinai, that was a great beginning. That's still a solid foundation upon which to build. I'm sticking with plan A. And now here in the days of Elijah, how do we build upon that? Well, now God talks to the prophet Elijah In a still, small voice. And basically he's telling them, listen, Elijah, it's a long war. What you did up there in Mount Carmel, that's just one battle in the midst of many battles that still have to be fought. And Elijah, you need to understand that God is not going to fight every battle the same way. Yeah, sometimes he'll do something big and dramatic. Fire from the sky. Something really spectacular. But God also will fight the battle in other ways. For example, verse 18. He says, Elijah, there's 7,000 people. You've never even heard of them before. You know why you've never heard of them? Because their ministry's not like yours. Your ministry's public, invisible. They minister behind the scenes. But in their own quiet, simple ways, they are fighting the battle too. So you see, Elijah, in big ways and little ways, in dramatic ways and in quiet ways, I will carry out my plan, and I will win this war, and I will defeat the enemy. So, Elijah, it's time for you to get back into the action. In verses 14 to 18, God lays out all the specific things he wants them to begin to do. Now, let's step back. What do we learn from all of this? When Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, died back in 2007, she had some words written on her tombstone, words that she had chosen herself. And it wasn't a poem, and it wasn't a verse of scripture. In fact, they were the kind of words you don't typically find on a gravestone. You see, one day, Ruth Graham was driving down a highway there in North Carolina, and she came upon this construction zone, and it seemed like this detour just went on for miles and miles and miles. I mean, narrow lanes twisting this way and that, and all kinds of orange signs warning you to slow down, keep to the left, no passing. Heavy, on both sides of the road, heavy machinery, noisy equipment, both sides of the road, Ruth said it just made the whole highway seem busy and hectic. She said, I thought I'd never get home. I mean, the drive was just so long, and tedious that day. But finally, after miles and miles of bumper-to-bumper traffic, there was one last sign, and it read, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. And Ruth Graham said that just hit her. Hey, that's not just a road sign. That's a sign for life. And she's right. Over the course of our lives, we find ourselves living in this broken-down world, and then we discover we're part of the mess, too. Our lives are anything but a finished product. There's all kinds of flaws there. So every day, we're under construction. God constantly working on us. God constantly working through us to change things for the better. But one day, at the end of our days, God's going to put up a sign that says, End of construction. Thank you for your patience. And those were the words that Ruth Graham had engraved on her tombstone. I love that. You know why have you ever noticed in the bible how the bible both old testament and new testament how it describes our life with god it calls it a walk we are called to walk with god not run with them not jump ahead to the good parts no every day just walk with god slow steady steps over a long period of time where every day you are patiently learning and it is a learning process Sometimes three steps forward, sometimes two steps back. But every day we're learning, we continue to learn how to move in the right direction. That's Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. Hey, Elijah, that miracle on Mount Carmel, that was just one step in a very long journey. And God still has more steps for you to take. And Elijah's learning that in this walk with God, not every step we take is the same kind of step. Sometimes God's going to lead you to a Mount Carmel, but other times God's going to bring you to a Mount Sinai. In other words, sometimes God's going to lead you to places where he wants you to serve others and minister to them. But sometimes God's going to bring you to those places where now he can serve you and he can heal that troubled heart. One last analogy. I'll stop. Think about the transformation that takes place in the life of a butterfly and how that transformation comes about. You remember, butterfly doesn't start off as a butterfly, does it? It starts off life as a, as a caterpillar, ugly caterpillar, crawling around the leaf. And then one day it begins to form this envelope, this silk-like envelope. It begins to build a cocoon. And once the cocoon is finished, it, it stops crawling, ceases all activity. Now it's in this new home, this new environment. And once in that cocoon, it just rests, just hanging there from the branch but while the caterpillars doing nothing something's happening to the caterpillar a marvelous change begins to take place and one day the change becomes evident to all because what emerges from the cocoon is not the caterpillar it's this beautiful butterfly brand new creature new energy new purpose and now it has something it didn't have before wings to fly That's God's work with us. He knows we live in a very wicked world. And from time to time, this world is going to take its toll on us, just like it did with Elijah. Some days it'll just break you in two, and everything seems mean and ugly and just pointless. But that's why God creates these cocoons. The Bible calls them Sabbaths. There are weekly Sabbaths, there are yearly Sabbaths, and there are seasonal Sabbaths, all different kinds of Sabbaths so he can minister to us in different ways. But there are these specific moments and times where God calls us, Psalm 120, calls us away from the lies of the world, and just come and be alone with him so while we rest he can work, so he can invest, so he can feed our faith and make us strong again. For Elijah... Those green pastures and still waters were found on a place called Mount Sinai. But where's the place for you? Where's the place where God has the opportunity to restore your soul? Let's pray.